Thank you, Alan. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Matt's uh, already alluded to it being an interesting morning for us. I have had two, two experiences, actually, today I should share with you. One was, uh, I normally come into the office around 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning just to take some time to look over the notes, prepare myself, pray, um, just be in God's presence for a while. And this morning I did that thinking, eh, it's not going to be such a bad morning. <laughs> and I went into, you know, the photocopying room in the office we have a box on the wall, a steel frame thing with lights and I don't know what it is, it's, it's got computer stuff in it and the network stuff and whatnot and it sits up there on the wall and I went into the office to grab a piece of paper and I dropped the paper, bent down, stood up, bang, right on the back of the head, major headache. Uh, there's still a lump the size of a small egg uh, on the back of my head <laughs> and I sat down at my desk thinking, oh man, I've got a headache. And then I looked at the newsletter that you've got and it said, David Hodgins is preaching. And then I looked on Alvanto, which is kind of like only second to the Bible as far as all of the information for the church. And it said, yes, speaker. And I thought, now I've got two headaches. (laughs) And I'm reminded of a story I think I might have told some of you before of a story I read years ago, a couple of German pastors, an old fellow who had been preaching for years and years and years and always was meticulous in his preparation and a young fellow who uh, really just loved to fly by the seat of his pants and and, uh, they were having a conversation on this particular day about how they go about the preparation and the old fellow whose name is Heinrich said, you know, I spent hours and hours of thoughtful meditation and preparation in anticipation of preaching and the young guy said man I don't know why you do all that just get up there and let the Holy Spirit speak and the old fellow Heinrich said yes I tried that once and the Holy Spirit said four words Heinrich you are lazy (laughs) (laughs) and so here this morning we recognize the curious but important intermarriage of human advocacy if you like and the work of the Holy Spirit and that's true of any time we're engaged in ministry no matter what form or shape that ministry might take not just in terms of preaching but in terms of whatever we might do and the value of depending on the Holy Spirit and having done the preparation before you get up to preach. So we're going to take some time this morning to have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through to verse 19 and I encourage you if you've got your Bible to grab that, we're going to have a look at that and I'll read through it now and then we're going to unpack it in a little more detail in a few moments. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And 
If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. And as we spend some time this morning, may you minister to us. Lord, you know us intimately, more intimately than we can possibly know ourselves even. You know where it is that you need to touch us. May your Holy Spirit reach out into those places today. Help us to grow in the things of God, we ask. Help us to hear what you're saying to your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've told you, I think, on a previous occasion how when I was teaching, I was brought up by some very good teachers. In fact, when I was training teachers at one stage, one of the things I was often asked was, how do I become a really good teacher? And I would say to them, just copy other good ones. You know, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that kind of model. And uh, one of the things that when I was uh, teaching, I had been trained to do was never to smile at the class before Easter. <laughs> just think about that for a few moments you know you go in at the end of January start of February uh, you, the idea was you put on your surliest face your grumpy appearance uh, your disposition was to be stern strict and hard to get along with because the last thing you wanted was those kids to say oh good we've got someone we can take advantage of because I know for sure in any class of children any group of children there will always be some who are sitting there thinking to themselves Okay, where is an opening for me? How can I become uh, notorious in this new environment? And so there are a couple of strategies that I used to use. One was I would say to the class, I don't know any of you. It was a bit like coming here to Wodonga to a new church. I don't know any people in this classroom. By the end of today, I'll know six people. Make sure that you're not one of those six people. (laughs) Because generally... (laughs) Those six people were the ones who had, all those six children were the ones who kind of put their heads up just to see whether you were serious, you know. And, uh, and the principle, as in the principle PLE, the idea was the first person to stick their head up, you blew it off. <laughs> and the next person who was thinking, I might stick my head up, would suddenly think, no, I'm not going to do that, it's not very smart. The other strategy that I used was this one. Uh, I would say to the class... You and I are going to be here together for a whole year. We're going to have a terrific year if you cooperate and do what I ask you to do. I will not be unkind or un, un, uh, I will not be mean to you. I won't be unreasonable. I will expect you to work hard, but when you work hard, you will be appropriately rewarded. If you don't want to participate in this kind of regime that we're going to establish in our classroom, I have a hundred ways to make your life miserable. We'll start with the first one today. And the general expectation that was communicated in that moment was, if you do the right thing, you'll be all right. And that's how we kind of think about life, isn't it, usually? If we think about uh, the way we prosecute our lives, how we live our lives generally in the world that we're part of, if you do the right thing, you'll be okay. Get on with it and it'll be all right. Keep your head down, do the right thing, obey the law, whatever it might be, you'll be all right. And that's why I kind of smile when, uh, as has happened just recently, we were driving somewhere recently and I noticed on the side of the road a police car had pulled up 
a VT Commodore with P-plates on it, which appeared to have had the rear suspension totally removed. You know that kind of car that's kind of dragging along. And I can just imagine the conversation that the young guy in that car, and I'm pretty confident it was a young guy, was having, why am I always getting picked on? (laughs) We do have this kind of expectation that uh, if we do the right thing, then we'll get on okay in life. Life will be good for us. But that's not an equation that is necessarily true of Christianity, is it? And as I've spoken with you before on this topic, though we might uh, walk faithfully with the Lord, though we might do our very best to be obedient to God's commands, though we might uh, walk as God expects us to walk, we are not immune to the hard stuff of life. We are not immune to the pain, the grief or the suffering of life. There is no guarantee, there is no magic solution, there's no golden ticket to freedom from suffering as we walk with Christ. And so as we come to this passage, Peter recognises that and recognises that he needs to address this again in this context because he was writing to people who were struggling with persecution, who were suffering perhaps uh, a very real and physical kind of suffering uh, and he needs to address that and he does so in a very, very gracious way. It's a lovely way that Peter starts this passage. He says, Dear friends, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I've shared this story uh, with some of you too. I had a friend whose name was Peter, whose son uh, died with uh, brain tumours, a young guy by the name of Lee, just a very young man too. And Peter and I had breakfast every Thursday morning with a couple of other men and and we journeyed through this time, through this time of sickness, through this time of grief, through this time of suffering and it was an amazing journey to go on with someone else. The highs and the lows of the treatment, you understand that if you've ever walked that road of of grief with someone who's had cancer, uh, the hope that you hold on to and the, the prayer that is offered up and the, the, the light that there is on occasions and the darkness that accompanies it. There's, it was, this was the journey that we went through. On one occasion, I remember Peter coming to breakfast on Thursday morning. He'd been in Melbourne down at Peter McCallum uh, earlier in that week and he had a very funny story. Well, it was a funny story but a sad story. He said, I was walking around just having a break from sitting with my son Lee who, whose diagnosis was dire. And I was listening to uh, the radio, the ABC radio talkback, which is the font of all knowledge, of course. And, uh, you know, they were lamenting that there was a particular AFL player. I don't have a clue who it was or who he played for. I just remember it was a conversation about a young guy who had done his knee and, my goodness, what a terrible grief that was going to be. And uh, chances are that he was never going to be able to play again because he would be out for the next six months and what was that going to mean for his mental health and all this kind of stuff. And Peter said, I just couldn't stand it anymore. And so I rang them up. And I said to them, hey, listen, I don't mean to uh, decry the circumstance of this young man, but my son is in hospital with an incurable condition. He's been given just weeks to live. I wonder if we could have some perspective. And I'm really glad that I wasn't at the other end of that telephone call. It would have been done very graciously, but my goodness, wouldn't that have been confronting 
And we went right through this journey with Peter and, uh, and Lee passed away. We had a funeral. A big crowd of people were at the funeral. Uh, one of Lee's friends had actually bought an old hearse, so they used that for the hearse. Uh, it, it was an amazing, an amazing journey. And after it all was over, I said to Peter, I wonder if you'd do something for me. I wonder if you'd take some time to write down uh, what has been helpful for you and what has not been helpful for you through this journey of grief. Because as a pastor, sometimes I don't know what to say. What do you say in situations like that? It's one of those perennial questions, isn't it? How do you comfort a friend? How do you be a presence in those kinds of places? What do you say? What do you not say? I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that question. I wrestle with it lots of times and I've come to a couple of conclusions. And so Peter, who was very, very good at um, writing, set to and wrote me a, a piece of paper which he titled Grief From Within. And he, uh, he recounted two stories, quite contrasting stories. One was a story of a friend who'd come to him and said, oh, you know, give him all the advice, you should try this, you should do that, all the, all the good stuff, you know. But another friend, and this is the one that he reflected on most, a friend who came from up Hawksdale, MacArthurway, somewhere out in the bush there, he said, this guy just got on the phone and he said, oh, Peter, I'm so sorry, and just broke down, couldn't talk, couldn't say anything. And Peter's reflection was this, he said, the grief that I was in, the grief that our family was in was like being in a big deep hole and some of you have been in these places, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right down in the bottom of a deep, 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 uh, a deep dark hole. And there were some people who came along to that hole and they stood at the top of the hole and they yelled advice. And there were others who were prepared to get down in the hole with me. And my friend from MacArthur got down in the hole with me. He didn't use words. He just shared that grief with me and I knew that he was uh, with me in that. And I see something of that in what Peter does here in writing to these people. He addresses them very, very gently as dear friends, as people who he has this great affinity with, this lovely connection with. And he speaks very tenderly with them uh, and he understands that he needs to do that because they're asking a really hard question the really hard question that they're asking is why now why are we suffering why are we suffering as followers of christ and paul says in Col colossians chapter 2 verse 15 and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made them a public spectacle triumphing over them by the cross you see jesus has had the victory and what happened in Roman times, of course, was when one of the, uh, the, the generals had a victory, they would parade before the people and say, we are the victors, we have conquered our foes. In fact, they would literally drag some of their foes along to show how humiliated they were. These foes who no longer had any opportunity to inflict anything on the victor. The victor totally dominated the foe. And Christ has had the victory. If Christ has had the victory, the obvious question that the Christians are asking, well, why is this happening? You know, if Christ has had victory over his foes, why are they still doing this stuff? Good question. If you're suffering for being a Christian, where is the victory? And so Peter addresses that very question. Don't be surprised, he says, at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ 
so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, we need to understand uh, that suffering has two sides and Peter explains these two sides. The first side is this, our suffering finds significance in that Christ suffered for us. We share in the sufferings of Christ. And in verse 13, as Paul, uh, Peter says here, uh, our suffering has a side that uh, we might share in God's glory. We suffer because Christ suffered. We suffer, uh, but we also share the glory of Christ. There's these two things that balance one against the other, if you like. So let's consider this suffering of Christ and what it means for us for just a moment. We need to remember, of course, that Peter actually witnessed the suffering of Christ. If you go to chapter 5, verse 1, just a few... Well, in fact, it's the very next verse after verse 19. He says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow, as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. You see, Peter's actually seen this suffering of Christ. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness. He saw what happened. And Peter understands too that Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous to bring us back to God. If we back up a little bit to chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death, as he says there in the body, but made alive through the Spirit. And this question of the righteous suffering is one that the Scripture has dealt with time and time again and Peter would have been very familiar with and actually Peter gives the same answer that we find sown throughout uh, the entire Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. The answer basically is that because God is sovereign, we suffer uh, and we suffer according to God's sovereign will. If you have a look there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, those who suffer uh, according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do God. That's the, the bottom line answer. We suffer because it's God's will. But this has to be understood and this is where we must get hold of this because God is not just a capricious God who says, great, you know, I've made all these people, let's make them suffer, let's... I'm just going to have fun watching this, you know. God is not like that, not like that at all. We need to understand uh, that in, in the, uh, the light of Christ's suffering. For only Jesus was truly righteous, yet he suffered for our sins. In God's purpose, in God's strange economy, if you like, by God's design, it was that Jesus should suffer for sin and so save us. And this, Peter says, if we back up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, is something that the prophets looked for and looked at uh, all those years ago. Let me just read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Just over this last week while I've been on holidays, I was reading uh, one of uh, Laura's VCE texts, The Year of Wonders. Who's the author of that book? Thank you, Geraldine Brooks, Year of Wonders. Thank you, Roderick. Very interesting read. 
It's a story, uh, it's a, a fictional story based on, or loosely based on a true story of a village who in uh, 1066, around the time, no, 1666, sorry, around the time of the plague, determined to isolate themselves so that they would not spread the plague elsewhere. Now, they didn't understand how the plague was spread in those days. They didn't understand that the bubonic plague was spread by uh, the fleas that inhabited the rats, fleas which also took up residence in people's clothes and infested the seams of their clothing, their bedding, and I'm just looking around to see if anyone's scratching just now (laughs) because... It's sort of like a you know, psychosomatic thing happens, you know, when we talk about that, suddenly I see people doing this. If I talked about head lice, you know, suddenly. So here's the story. Geraldine Brooks tells his story of the village that isolated themselves. They, they were led by an Anglican priest and, and a community who, who deliberately isolated themselves uh, from the rest of the world. They arranged for their supplies to be brought to a point so that they would not have face-to-face bodily contact with other people and so stop or prevent the spread of the plague through means which they didn't understand, uh, which, of course, was successful, largely because the fleas were not able to infect other communities. But the book interacts with some amazing questions, the questions of suffering, God's will, God's purpose in all of this. And what do we do as people to try and make sense of suffering? What do we do to try and alleviate suffering? What do we do to understand suffering? And though it is just a fictional story, it it unpacks some of those questions in a really, really interesting manner. And one of the, uh, the things that um, Geraldine Brooks highlights, which would have been true in that time, is this melding of religious and pagan beliefs. And uh, there was an occasion, as was recounted there, and has been demonstrated through history when people did not understand the ways of God, where they would literally go about uh, means of punishing themselves to try and bring God's favour or to ameliorate or to lift the burden of suffering so flagellating whipping themselves that sort of stuff you would have seen some of this stuff represented in different movies perhaps but one of the really important messages that Peter wants us to understand about the death of Christ and Christ's suffering is this it was sufficient for sin there is nothing that we have to do or nothing that we can do that adds to the atonement that Christ has performed for us. In other words, what Jesus has done for us in dealing with sin was enough. Suffering as we experience it cannot be understood as something that we need to expiate from ourselves or deal with so that we somehow make ourselves pleasing to God or win salvation, if you like. Christ suffered for sins once, Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God's. When I spoke on this passage a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that difficult verse that follows that verse 20 in chapter 3 where it speaks about Jesus waiting patiently, uh, sorry, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. You know, there's all sorts of theories about what that means But what we must make sure we never lose sight of is that the sacrifice that Christ performed on the cross was sufficient. Once was enough. But when we suffer as Christians, there is a sense that we share in Jesus' suffering. Not that we somehow perform 
our own salvation or that we win our own salvation but that we are aligning ourselves or somehow paralleling our experience with Christ. We are made righteous by Christ but as the righteous we suffer with Christ. Many, many years ago we were having a family holiday. This is back when I was... I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 or 12 at uh, Tidal River. Has anyone been down that part of the world? Wilson's Promontory, beautiful area. And on this particular day, the, the waves were big and the wind was blowing a gale from the south and we decided to go for a bushwalk out to Pillar Point, which if you walk from Tidal River, you head west and then south right out onto one of those promontories that goes out into the ocean. And the ocean is amazing. The rock sort of slopes up and the waves were crashing in the water. You can imagine it washes up and washes down and you can see how fishermen standing on rocks could easily be taken. My father and my brother and I were out walking. My mother stayed back up at the top and, uh, and my brother disappeared. Now, I say that lightly, but in that context, uh, he's a, about a year and a half younger than I am. What had happened to him? We had no idea. We were walking at the top where the vegetation ends and the rock starts. So we were relatively safe, even though the swell was uh, rolling. Now, I look, to be honest, my memories of it are of a 10-year-old. It, it may have just been nice, gentle waves. But, <laughs> but I have in my mind this enormous swell that's washing up and washing down. And my father <clears throat> suddenly thought, where is my little boy? He's not with us, looking around. Where, he was here with us a moment ago. Where is he now? The obvious conclusion that you come to is necessarily not the, the best one, is it? It was the worst one. Has he been washed into the ocean? And so quickly, my father scrambled down and, and was walking along these treacherous rocks. They sloped down, they were wet, they were slippery and as a boy I just wanted to follow him, I, just wanted, I didn't want to be left alone because my goodness already this raging sea might have taken my brother. That wouldn't always have been a bad thing, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but in that moment I realised that, you know, sometimes I thought unkind things about him and oh my goodness. Um, but let me just tell you, I can remember that occasion as we scrambled along those rocks. It was one of the most fearful experiences of my life because my father was going as fast as he could, looking, looking, looking. And I just wanted to follow him uh, on this rescue mission. And just to tell you how the story ends before I give you the application, we didn't find him in the ocean, thankfully. We went eventually around back up to look at to find him sitting there on a rock just saying, where have you guys been? <laughs> Which was great. Don't misunderstand me. But the illustration uh, has sat with me as an example of the cost that there is in following our father into the mission that he calls us to in the world. You see, my father was on a mission that day to save a soul. He was looking for a lost child. And he literally would have done just about anything to find him. I don't know what would have happened if he'd been in the water. I reckon Dad would have just jumped in there and grabbed him and thrown him back up. Uh, but the cost of following our Heavenly Father into the mission that He's called us into the world does involve suffering. It involves pain. It's going to push us outside our comfort zone, isn't it? 
There are times where we will be finding ourselves doing things that causes an enormous amount of fear and stress as that did in my life on that occasion. But that is such the nature of, uh, of Christian mission and God's call to be with him and the suffering that accompanies us in that. In Luke chapter 9 verse 58, Jesus said these words, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's a really interesting statement. And it highlights for us that faithfulness, obedience, righteousness, doing the right thing doesn't necessarily bring comfort or ease or worldly fulfilment. Just look at the example of Christ again. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." Faithfulness doesn't necessarily bring comfort, ease or worldly fulfilment. Verse 14, Peter goes on to say there, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of, glo- uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, recognising uh, that there is a reality uh, in our world. If you're insulted because of the name, if you stand up for what is true, if you stand up for what is right, then you are going to be persecuted for that. But be encouraged, Peter says, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I'll come back to that in just a moment, but let me run through verse 15 with you when Peter goes on to say, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now that actually, those words are kind of familiar because if you go back just a few verses to chapter 2 verse 19 probably three weeks or four weeks ago when I spoke about this Peter said it's commendable if a person bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it Peter's at pains to say you know if you're suffering because of your own silly behavior or your own poor decision making don't parade around as, as if you're some sort of martyr I've seen, I've seen that happen on occasions uh, where people have made some really, really poor choices and say, oh, God is against me. Well, actually, no, God's for you. It's you that's made some poor decisions in that. And verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name from the very, very earliest years of the Christian church. The church has celebrated those who have borne suffering and stood up to suffering, who have stood up to persecution, who have been martyred for their faith. You'll probably be familiar with the story of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, who, uh, who having uh, served the Lord all of his life, was finally arrested and on pain of death was told, you know, recant, curse Christ or you will die, just bow down before the Emperor. And what did Polycarp say? For 86 years I've served him and he's never done me wrong yet. Why should I curse my saviour and so was burned at the stake and we still tell his story today as one who stood up in the face of suffering in verse 16 as uh, we've just touched base with those who suffer are filled with hope they know that they will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed which we saw there in verse 13 
But here's the good news and here's some very good news for us. This glory that Christ speaks about, the glory that Peter talks about in this passage is not just a future hope. It's not just something we long for which is yet to be our possession. It's actually a present reality. And if you come back to verse 14, the present reality is described. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit. That is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory rests upon you and nothing can take that Holy Spirit away. Nothing can steal our possession uh, or God's possession of us, if you like, away. God's Holy Spirit rests upon us when we suffer. Now, Peter was intimately aware of this. Peter had proclaimed the coming of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Peter had heard... Uh, Jesus preached blessings for those who were persecuted for his sake. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, for instance, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And in Acts chapter 4, if you jump back there, you'll see when Peter first experienced the wrath of the high priest, he prayed with others that he was with for boldness. And the whole assembly was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Those who walk with the Lord have this wonderful promise. We have this wonderful promise of the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And no matter what our circumstances, nothing can steal that away from us. And in those places, God's Holy Spirit ministers to us. This present reality of the Holy Spirit is something we have now not just something that we hope for, although we have a future hope too, of course, in being with Christ in glory. And that's what Paul, uh, sorry, Peter speaks about. Uh, praise God that you bear his name. This suffering for Christ leads to glory, but it also gives glory to God. And one of the things that Peter wants us to understand is this. When believers suffer for Christ, they give glory to God. You might remember back in the Old Testament, Satan tested Job. Job was a faithful man, a righteous man. And uh, Satan tested Job and Job stood up to the tests and so vindicated God. What God said was true in that place. Paul, Silas sang hymns in prison and God was given glory. That's in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Peter testified before the very rulers who put Jesus to death and God was given the glory. And throughout history, Christians who have remained faithful in suffering have uh, con consistently given glory to God. There's a verse here we need to just touch base on. It's, uh, it's a tough one, verse 17, where it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? In some senses, that verse is a warning. In some senses, it's a, a verse of challenge too. For Peter is saying, in effect there, you know, God's work is starting with you. You're the ones who know the Lord. This suffering that you're experiencing is your identification with Christ. Uh, it's, it's part of God's outworking of his plan. What will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? There's a warning of judgment in that verse. 
If it's hard for the righteous, Peter goes on to say, to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And then verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good, to persevere, to stick at it, to continue to serve God. We've spoken about suffering and much of the um, emphasis this morning has been around practical stuff, you know, persecution, being, what was the word that Peter used here, insulted because of the name of Christ. The Bible also speaks about us identifying with Christ in his suffering sacramentally and it's appropriate this morning that we've celebrated communion because in the tradition of our church we celebrate two sacraments or two things that we believe Christ has commanded us to celebrate, communion and baptism, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In respect of baptism, if we back up to uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 3, this is what Paul says. I'll read chapter 6 verse 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, we died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? As we go through this ritual this tradition of baptize, uh, baptizing people or being baptized we're identifying with Christ's death we're identifying with his suffering we were buried Paul says with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too may live a new life we suffer sacramentally we suffer by identifying with Christ in baptism and in communion, that which we have celebrated this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul says, sorry, verse 16, verse 6 made no sense to me, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? As we share our communion, we are again identifying with the suffering of Christ. And to finish with this morning, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul again says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been crucified with Christ. Christ now lives in us. And there's the promise from 1 Peter chapter 4, that presence of the Holy Spirit with us, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what the grief, no matter, no matter what the trial, no matter what the context that we might be in, Christ is in us. What a blessed promise that is. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again this morning for your word, for the richness uh, that it contains, for the love that we find expressed through it, for the challenge that there is to grow and to become more like Christ, for the encouragement, for the teaching that drives us closer to you, Lord. Father, this morning we have touched, albeit briefly and somewhat lightly, on one of the big questions that people continue to ask 
in our time and in our day. Questions that drive some people to faith, questions that drive others from faith. Lord, we thank you for the consistent testimony and witness of your scripture that you are a loving God and a sovereign God who does what is right according to your perfect will, knowledge and purpose. Help us, we pray, to understand suffering in the light of that context. Help us to make sense of our circumstances in what you have revealed to us about who you are and your circumstance. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have walked this road before us and shown us the way. We thank you, Lord, above all for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ who now lives in us, empowering us, showing us the way, growing us day by day to become more like Christ. Lord, we pray for the circumstances that we might find ourselves in, that you will help us to act as Christ acts in those places, to recognise what you want to do in terms of growing us, revealing yourself to us, resting upon us. In all contexts, praise your name because you are a good and perfect God. Help us too to model ourselves after someone like Peter who when dealing with others who were journeying through the valley of the shadow of death or through difficult, grievous circumstances demonstrated a gentleness and a, uh, a unity of spirit that would minister love and grace into those places. Lord Jesus, continue to speak to us, your church, we pray. Help us to advocate to help us to explain these things to those who might ask us to those who have perhaps walked away from faith because they've not been able to resolve these difficult questions the questions of suffering the whys the what's it for the meaning help us to do that in the light of your love and the revelation of who you are we pray in jesus name amen